0: okay well we're uh, week two and uh, working our way through Ephesians and uh, wasn't it a great week for those that were here last week wonderful week as um, dr. Sean Dutoy kicked us off on the uh, on the whole journey and um, there are a whole Bunch of, There there's a whole lot of stuff for me in person. I was like, wow, that's cool, the way that he was kind of phrasing that. What I'd like to do to start is to play like a, I think it's about three or four minute video that gives you an overview of Ephesians up to this point. So because we're a lot of visitors here, and I knew that a lot of our guys would be away, I thought, let's just play catch up, and we may do this semi-regularly so that you understand the journey that we're on as uh, as we work through Ephesians. So let's hit it, Shane, and uh, oh, let's hit it. Let's, oh. Oh, it is working. Oh, volume's not up. Sorry, my bad. Here's it. Here we go.
1: Paul's letter to the Ephesians. The story of how Paul came to the city of Ephesus is really interesting. You can go read about it in Acts chapter 19. Ephesus was a huge city. It was the epicenter of worship for most of the Greek and Roman gods. And For over two years, Paul had a really effective missionary presence there and lots of people became followers of Jesus. Years later, after being imprisoned by the Romans, Paul wrote this letter. The movement of thought in the letter divides into two really clear halves. In the first half, Paul is exploring the story of the gospel, how all history came to its climax in Jesus and in his creation of this multi-ethnic community of his followers. The second half of the letter is linked to the first by the word, therefore. And here Paul explores how the gospel story should affect how we live every part of our life story, personally, in our neighborhoods, and communities, and in our families. So let's dive in and we can see how Paul develops all of this. Chapter 1 opens with a beautiful Jewish style poem where Paul praises God the Father for the amazing things that he has done in Christ Jesus. From eternity past, the Father has purpose to choose and bless a covenant people. And think here, the family of Abraham and Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 through 3. And through Jesus now, anyone can be adopted into that family. Jesus' death covers our worst sins, our worst failures, and in Jesus we find God's grace. In fact, Paul says, that grace has opened up a whole new way for us to understand every part of our lives. He says in chapter 1 verse 10 that God's purpose was to unify all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, which is a title that means Messiah. God's plan was always to have a huge family of restored human beings who are unified in Jesus the Messiah. This divine purpose became clear Paul says when we were first made into that family and here he's referring to ethnic Jews in the family of Abraham. But then Paul talks about how you, and here he means non-Jews, you all heard about Jesus and the salvation through him. And you were also brought into this family by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so here he's referring to the events told in the stories of Acts about how God's Spirit brought together Jew and non-Jew into one family in Jesus. It's just like God promised to Abraham long ago. Notice also how in this poem Paul begins by talking about God the Father but then about Jesus the Son and then here, the end about the spirit. All three work together as Paul tells the story of the gospel. It's really cool. After the poem, Paul responds with a prayer. He prays that these followers of Jesus would not just know about but personally experience the power of the gospel. That they would be energized by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and placed him as the exalted head of the whole world. Now in chapter 2, Paul goes back and he elaborates on some key ideas from the poem in chapter 1, especially God's grace and this new multi-ethnic family of Jesus. He begins by retelling the story of how these non-Jewish Christians came to know Jesus. Before hearing about Jesus, they were physically alive but they were spiritually dead. They were trapped in a purposeless life of selfishness and sin and they were deceived by dark spiritual forces of evil. But amazingly, God in his great love and mercy, he saved them, he forgave all of their sins and he joined their lives to Jesus' resurrection life and he's brought them back to life too. And so now, having been created as new human beings through Jesus, they have the joy of discovering all of the new calling and purposes and tasks that God has set before them. Not only have they been shown God's grace, they've also been invited into a new family. Before hearing about Jesus, these non-Jewish people, they were not just cut off from God, they were cut off from his covenant people, the family of Abraham. And for a really practical reason, the commands of the Sinai Covenant, they formed like a boundary line around the family. They were like a barrier that kept most non-Jewish people away. But in Jesus, the laws of the Torah have been fulfilled and the barrier is removed. The two ethnic groups have become, as Paul puts it, a new unified humanity that can live together in peace.
0: So that's what we're up to. So what we're looking at today is Ephesians 1, uh, 13 through to 2, verse 22. And so uh, that'll be up on the screens, but let me just rip through some of this. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, interesting. let's stop there. <laughs> for this reason... So Paul changes gears. Now the interesting thing is, Paul, uh, as, Paul as Sean Dutoy pointed out last week, is that that opening passage of Ephesians is one ginormous sentence. It's a grammatical nightmare. It's just Paul frothing on what God has done in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, therefore, for this reason, sorry, which is him taking a breath. And then he goes into another enormous Lincoln sentence that's got terrible grammar, and it's Paul completely frothed again about what God has done for this reason. So what's the reason? Because God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, because he has chosen you for mission, because he's chosen to partner with you, because for the reason that he's adopted you to be in his family, because he's lavished his grace on you, because he has let you in on the plan to bring all things on heaven and earth together in unity under Christ, because he has poured out his spirit on you. For these reasons, I'm filled with thanksgiving for you, church. Like that's you. And then you can appreciate that Paul is like, this is incredible what's going on here. And Paul hasn't just, like Paul's a genius. Paul's uh, academic Background is par none at that time. And there's a reason why scholars to this day analyse Paul to the nth level. It's because he's a genius, very clever guy. Sean last week, brain the size of a planet, you know, and I hang up with him and I feel like, "Mm," you know, and it's like, I can count to 10. And it's like, and there's these genius sort of guys. And Paul's like this, but here's the interesting thing. Paul can know all this stuff, but Paul's experienced it. He's experienced the grace. He's experienced the calling. He's experienced the forgiveness. This guy was murdering Christians and then Jesus intervened in his life. He's experienced it. And so what's his prayer for you, church? He's like, I pray that you would know this. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe but who believe. He's like, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I pray that you would have an aha moment. I pray that you'll be, we've had these moments, many of us, whoa, he's real. Whoa, his grace is even for me. Whoa, I'm a mess. He still loves me. And whoa, this isn't just theory. This is This is real. This is what Paul's praying because we don't need academic Christians as much as I love them and and we do kind of need them to help us not get wonky in terms of doctrine. But the main thing we need is people who've experienced this. And I just wish I could do that for you in the same way I'm sure Paul wished he could do it for the church in Ephesus. I can't make that happen. It's sovereign. But I can pray. Oh Lord, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened, that you would see. the And and, and there's three things he points at that that you would not. That you would know the hope to which he has called you, number one, the riches of his inheritance in the saints, and thirdly, the power that is available to us. Let's have a look at those three. Firstly, the hope. God's When God grabs your life, he changes it, and he fills it with hope. And this is what we're praying, that God would fill you with hope for two things in particular. Number one, that you do not have to stay where you're at that the hope in Jesus is that you can be and will be by His Spirit transformed from glory to glory to become a person that you really like. It's called sanctification, the official theological term, and I am convinced it's true. (laughs) I've seen Him do enough stuff in my life and I've got enough heroes of mine like Stephen, Adrian and others who have marinated in God's love for so long that they are a radically different person than they were 20 years ago. That's what God does. There's hope. Wherever you're at, whatever addiction you're stuck with, whatever bad habit continues to plague you, may your eyes of your heart be enlightened. May you know that you have hope in Jesus, that he's going to transform you from glory to glory. But the second hope that we have is uh, is that one day we will rise in resurrection glory to be with him forever in the age to come. We have a hope that says, the world is broken. Now we are to partner with him now to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That is the purpose to which he has called us. But one day he will bring that work to completion and he will return in glory and the, and the saints will rise to live with him again. This is a great hope that we have. One of my friends this week wrote a blog post, um, amazing blog post, and she said, you know what the most amazing feeling in the world is? And she said, it's relief. It's relief. It's Deb Hargrove. It's just such a, I'll, I'll link it on our community Facebook page. And I'm like, that's an interesting one. And I'm like, well, you're right. Like, England are feeling relief right today, and it's a great feeling. I pray that our South African brothers and sisters tonight feel relief. Anyone that's held on to to a full bladder on a long trip, those, that relief is the best feeling in the world. You know, or when you get that phone call, Deb, who wrote this blog post, they were in our church in Christchurch, and her husband, who's a builder, fell off a a ladder and got impaled by a a metal pile that was uh, sticking through the um, ground, uh, What I call a a rebar, whatever they call, and it literally, the doctor said it tickled his heart. It like it touched it, and so he gets rushed into surgery. Um, As a church, we're just freaking out. And she said the best feeling in the world was when the surgeon rang and said he's going to be okay. It was like relief. And then she made this great statement in the last line. She said, "One day, the world will be as it should be, and it will feel like a great relief." Oh, no more battling, no more stress, no more brokenness. The lion lying down with the lamb, all of that... Oh, it's, and she, she says, I think it's going to feel like relief. I thought, what a great insight. I think she's bang on. This is the hope to which he's called us. And so it's not an escapist hope. We've got a job to do in the present and he's going to transform us in the present. But we have this hope. I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. Secondly, to the riches of his inheritance with the saints, uh, in the saints. There is a beauty about hanging, the, the saints, that's you guys, believe it or not. Some of you go like, really? Yeah, yeah, if, mate, if you have seen, my week you weren't calling from Milwaukee, You're a saint if you if you've chosen Jesus as Lord, you're a saint in Jesus. And there is a rich inheritance by being part of a community of saints. We are grieving that Stephen Adrian are going because we love them and it's like they are our inheritance. It's like it's like wow, we get to hang out with these guys for a season. What a great privilege. Like there is a richness to a faith community that is part of our inheritance in Christ Jesus. I just struggle with people who have given up on church. I know that it's easy to do so. I've been a pastor for 17 years, and I've grown up in a, in a, as a pastor's kid. If you you name the rubbish that can happen in church, I have seen it. I have seen it. I, you know, just unbelievable the stuff that could go on in this community. And I appreciate that some people are like, that's it, I'm out. But I tell you what, it's this bride. And it's actually, even in that tricky stuff, the reason he puts us in community is because it's our laboratory where we learn how to love. It's the place where we learn how to really love, and we don't give up, and we don't walk away. And love isn't about me. It's about self-sacrificial giving of myself for the benefit of other people. That is ultimately what love's about. And so there's a rich inheritance if you hang in there with the saints. Past the honeymoon phase of like, oh, this is so good, and oh, I love you. You're fun, and oh, you're great. And then like six months later, you're annoying, and you talk too much, or you don't talk enough, or... You're just a bit weird, you know, and all of that and you get past that and then it's and, and nothing kills community like idealism. Yeah. You know what I mean? yeah. As you work through the nitty gritty, there's something that happens that's an incredible gift. And this is one of the things he's calling us to. And lastly, that we would know the incomparably great power available to us in God. We have big, a big vision to be conduits of God's love in the bay. We have big dreams about how a bunch of ordinary people can make a difference. And we have these big dreams because we know we have an incomparably great power available to us we're going to actually start stepping out in faith in new ways and saying, he can do it, he can do it. And that same, that power, he says, is the same mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him. This is Paul getting frothed up again. <laughs> he just doesn't stop. Exerted him when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority of power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present. The, most people think that Paul had a scribe writing this stuff down. And that actually when Paul talked. Talks about the thorn in his flesh. One of the suggestions is that he struggled with sight or with blindness. So occasionally, you'll hear Paul say, "I'm writing this in my own hand." Blah, 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 blah. And he kind of, but most of the time he probably had a scribe there who's poor guy, is like trying to keep up. Fire above every rule and power and dominion. <laughs> and every name that is invoked, not only is pacing up and down, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. And he's just worshiping the Lord and this poor guy, scribe in the jail. <laughs> Paul wants to drive his point home. The power that is available to us is the same that rose from the dead. It's available to you. And, and he's been seated in the heavenly realms. And this is not the problem, again, sometimes with our, our understanding of any time the words heaven's mentioned, as we think about some place way up there. And Jesus said, no, the kingdom of heaven's near. So you can reach out and almost touch it. And whenever Jesus went, wherever Jesus went, the kingdom of heaven broke in. And what does that mean? Healing took place. Broken hearts got healed. People got restored. People that were lonely had friendships. I mean, this is what everything, and that's what's happening in this place. This is what's happening whenever Jesus is present and he's here in our midst. The kingdom of heavens is just breaking in. And so he's, he's, it's not like he's far away, but he is above all the other systems and names that you think are powerful in our age. Like as, Paul, uh, as Sean said last week, We've got this in Ephesus. We've got this ginormous temple that's like the Sky City uh, Tower in Auckland. You can see it from everywhere, and we've got about 150 Christians in a city of about 100,000 people, and it's like you can't. How do you compete with that? And uh, and Paul's like, well, guess what? That temple. Well, the whole earth is the temple of God. (laughs) Like he's above all that. That's just nothing to him, and that's encouraging when you are oppressed. That's encouraging for our friends in Mara Nui, who are battling systemic brokenness from authorities at times. We're discovering this as we try and and partner with Bruce and Marley and others in Mara Nui. It's like, you know, there's just, there's councils and leaders and all that sort of stuff and it's tough work to try and, do good stuff. And there's systemic and it's like you can get discouraged until you remember he's above it all. Hallelujah. He's above it all. Hallelujah. And I want to pray for our leaders and our government and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. I want us to be a blessing to them. But ultimately, I, I believe that Jesus is Lord. And that sort of statement will get you killed in the Roman times, but that's a political statement. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. It's revolutionary, it's countercultural. And Paul is 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 putting this uh, Point home here. Whatever, client Snodgrass in his commentary on this is whatever powers exist, real or imaginary, human or non-human, they are all subject to Jesus Christ. And these things are under his feet, but further, he is the head of the church. We are called to be His body and be filled with His presence so that we may, He may use us to see His will be done. Empowered servants is what we're called to. They would have the fullness of Him within us. That His presence would be tangible and beautiful and experienced because but ultimately He's the head of the church, which is a great relief as a pastor, can I tell you. I'm not in, I have a role here, but I'm not in charge, if that makes sense. And that's why, plagued like the day of vision and prayer, we're going to seek the Lord together. Speak to us. Lead us. It's your church. We don't want to come up with good ideas. We want to hear your voice. And then we want to step out in faith and obedience to what you call us to. And then he continues this gospel message in chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest we were by nature deserving of wrath but because of his great love for us God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ uh, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions it is by grace you have been saved this is Paul's gospel message you used to be dead in your uh, previous way of living and there was two things that were happening. This was because, as Paul says, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, or the Satan, is at work through culture, through tempting thoughts, through a myriad of dark and selfish ways. Uh, there's this. There is an enemy out there, and like you just have to see the statistics. If you you, you know this is real, I don't have to even convince you. You know the dark thoughts that come. You know how. The enemy escalates something in your head that is just, you know, that brings pain and hurt. You know, you've just, we feel it. And so, but Paul's interesting, it's both here because it's not just oh, I'm just a victim because there's this stuff here. But he's like, also, there's some cravings of the flesh. We're like, oh, I might just have that extra cream bun, I think. Oh, shouldn't have it, but oh, hips. And, you know, and it's like, and it's both. It's both. We get in a tangle because of the cravings of the flesh. We do what feels good, even if it hurts others so often. And there is an enemy out there tempting and wanting to destroy lives. Um, I've been a pastor long enough, tragically, to have taken many, many uh, funerals from suicide. And, uh, and also I've been there for people who, by the grace of God, and, uh, did not die, but tried to take their lives. And it's fascinating when you talk to people who, and some of you may have gone through this, where it's like you're in that really dark place. It's like there is such an evil voice in your ear saying all sorts of lies. And you wake up the next day or you come to your senses and you're like, what was I thinking? It's all of this dynamic that's going on. And so we get in this massive tangle, and, and and Paul uses some strong language here. We were deserving of wrath. And I want to just make sure we understand what's happening here because for I do not want for a second you to think that God is the God who has any delight in wrath. it's like that, We've got a huge issue where people think that God is angry and like almost just waiting for you to screw up. And then he's like, yeah. I'm going to make you feel rats. Yeah, make life. I I love this definition of of what the wrath of God is because it is is a thing that comes through the Scriptures. This is Brian Zand. He says, The wrath of God is a biblical metaphor we use to describe the very real consequences we suffer from trying to go through life against the grain of love. The wrath of God is understood as divine consent to our own self-destructive defiance. When we sin against the two greatest commandments, to love God with all of our heart and to love our neighbour as ourselves, we suffer the inevitable consequences of acting against love. And we can call this the wrath of God. The Bible does. But that doesn't mean that God literally loses his temper. God respects your free will so much that if you choose to live a certain way, it's like, I'm going to let you. and and But I, I'm not going to intervene when those consequences start hitting you. But Paul is in this passage not wanting to uh, emphasize this dynamic. He says it to contrast what we deserve with God's love and grace and mercy. That's his focus. And and John, the apostle uh, John, who wrote um, uh, the Gospel of John in John 1, 2, and 3, he, uh, he wrote his Gospel in... Uh, at the latest possible time. And he was one of the few disciples to hit 80s or 90s, which is when they reckon he wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. So my point is that John has the longest time of all the stuff in Scripture to sit in the presence of God and to be sanctified and to dwell on who Jesus is. And John has this statement that is central to theology where he says this one little line, God is love. That is who God is. And so we've got to be careful about God's nature and attributes. Is he holy? Yes, but that is not at his core. That's an attribute of his love is his holiness. Is he just? Yes, he's just, but at his core, his, he is love. And his justice is always coming from a place of love. God is love. There's no but but he's this. No, he is love. God is love. Hallelujah. This is who he is. And this is what Paul says, that because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, what does he do? He made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions by grace. It's a gift. It's not fear. We don't do anything, but all we have to do is say, yes, I believe it's true and I will receive it. It's by grace. It's just a gift. It's why we take communion every week, is to remind ourselves it's not by works that we get saved or are made right by God. All you have to do is say, yes, I receive the gift. You're mine, Lord, and I'm yours. And oh, he pours out his grace upon us because of his grace. As Marie pointed out, I love saying this, everything God does is motivated by love and leads us to life. Everything, No exceptions. And so verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he may show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In this book, The Drama of Ephesians, by Timothy Gombas, he says this, Paul reveals in Ephesians why God, Ephesians 2 verse 7 why God has freed us from death and brought us into his new creation. It is because God loves to do good. He is a magnanimous lover who, bring, who longs to enjoy humanity and takes extreme measures to bring about our enjoyment of his goodness and blessing. God's original aim in creation was to enjoy watching humanity delight in His good creation. I'll say that again. God's original aim in creation was to enjoy watching humanity delight in his good creation, discovering creative ways to draw out its fruitfulness. This is, from the very beginning of the Bible, God's heart, his goodness and his kindness revealed to us through Christ Jesus. You are created to partner with God, to do good works, and it's a deeply satisfying experience when you do that. Verse 11, moving on. Therefore, that, uh, remember that formerly you are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised. All of this is like, oh no, here we go, circumcision. <laughs> and by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by the body, by human hands. Yep, know that. Uh, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of his promise and without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is—it's very interesting what's going on here, and it's hard for us to to grasp the impact of this. Because what's happening here is that God's in Jesus is cracking something open, so that you don't have to be Jewish to be near God, and that was like a big deal. I, I know that we've really we've accepted that because we're all Gentiles, unless you you know you may there may be one or two Jewish people here from, but we're all Gentiles effectively. So we're all the people that aren't included in this whole thing, and thanks be to God, now because of what Christ has done, you can be part of it. You can be in. I mean, the only thing I can, uh, the only equivalent today is a gang. It's like, once you're in a gang, like, there's other people that aren't in the gang, and you can tell, and it's not an easy thing to get in the gang, and and quite frankly, I hope none of you want to get in the gang, uh, and all the rest of it, but it's like, but the Jewish people were this gang and that, we've got it. And then what's their patch? They're a snip, snip, snip. And, and, and there are other times in the Bible where it's like, Paul's got to say in Romans, uh, hey guys, thank goodness we're now our hearts have been circumcised. So you don't have to have, there was debate in the early church. Well, these Gentiles are becoming Christians so they need to have the snip because that's the sign that they're in. And hallelujah, the guys got it right in the early church. And they said, "You, you, all the girls like, whatever, sweet as, you know, no, it's all right. No, it's not. (laughs) On behalf of the boys, no, they got it right. And what's what's the idea, though? What's the circumcision of the heart that says you've been marked, you're in, that's your patch. You're part of the gang now. And this is what's happened, as Paul is saying, it used to be that you guys couldn't be part of it. And now this is incredible. You can. You can be part of it. You're in. You're in the gang. Hallelujah. And, uh, and we'll look at this next week because Paul continues to be frothed about that. But it's, it's also, it's interesting because he's saying this, he himself is our peace. He has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And so he came and he preached peace to you who were far away, you Gentiles, and peace to those of you who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which Christ Himself, as with Christ Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him you too are being built up together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. A couple of things I want to say before we land this morning. What God does through the cross is bring reconciliation between two bunches of people who would never actually engage with each other apart from in hostility. Like That's what Jesus did on the cross. And there's a theological impact that says that a whole bunch of Gentiles can get together in Napier and, and from Hastings and Havelock North, North, gather together in the school hall and worship him. Hallelujah. And we don't have to have the snip to be part of the club. Hallelujah. We're all grateful for that. Well, half of us are anyway. So there's this dynamic going on. But also, this is a model for how we are to live as a a community of faith. And Paul's going to unpack this a whole lot in the second half of the book when he talks about the impact on our story. But listen, Jesus is in the business of reconciliation. The, Jesus is in the business and, and two people that you think there's no way these two can hang out in the same room together. Through him we can. And there's something about even our little expression that I adore in terms of the, the diversity in the room. <laughs> All sorts of different bunches of, you know, cultures and and socioeconomic backgrounds and uh, and all the diversity in the room is really cool. And this is the beauty of it is that it's, I don't know too many other places where this sort of thing can happen, but it does in Christ Jesus. And this is also why we are passionate about a bicultural journey in our church and and increasingly in this nation because God's heart was that two people would walk together in unity as one new humanity in Him, in this nation. And God did something in the early years through through the treaty and through the work of the missionaries that just got completely screwed up later on. And huge amounts of pain and huge amounts of betrayal. But what's the Lord doing? Reconciling. He's reconciling. He's bringing healing. He's bringing hope. He's bringing people together. This is what he does. And as he does that with himself as the cornerstone, there's a new building that is rising up. And what does it say in those scriptures? That there's a new temple. And that temple isn't a place of stone, it's a place of living flesh. And God comes and dwells in temples. You see that all throughout the Old Testament. You see that with all of the gods of the time, there's a temple in which they reside. And now through Jesus Christ, he says, yes, there is a temple in which I reside. It's you. What an amazing thought. He wants to live in your heart. And if you welcome him in, he does. He makes his home. And we, we rise together as a new temple filled with his spirit. Not because, again, I've got to underline this, not because you're a good person, but just simply because you've said yes to him. And when you say yes to him by his spirit, he begins to do something new in you. All right. As we come into land on this particular part of Ephesians, there's a couple of things I'd love us to, to just pray that God would do in our midst even this morning. The first is that God would... Reveal himself in a greater way to every one of us. I don't... Going to church without this revelation is lame. It's just like hanging out with Christians is annoying. If, if you haven't had what Paul's talking about here, which is an experience where the eyes of your heart have been open to see. Oh, wow. Your grace, your glory, your beauty, your... I've been adopted as your son. You love me. The riches, the lavish language that Paul uses, like that's something not to know in, in here, is to know in your knower, It's to know deep, deep down. It's an experience. And I want to I pray for those this morning that want this, that I can't make it happen. I can preach as you can get all frothed up. I, that, that doesn't make it happen. It's something that's sovereign. So I'm just, I'd love to pray if you feel a bit like, like just disconnected. Like you th- maybe even like, oh, it's cool as a theology or theory, so it makes sense, I suppose. But uh, I don't feel it. I want to pray that you just experience that this morning. So all we're going to do is ask. That's something that he does. The second thing is that we would have a fresh joy in the grace of God that we would rejoice that Jesus has raised us to life and that we'd rejoice not just that when we die, we get to be with him, but in life now, we get to be with him and partner with him, that he has a purpose for us, but that we'd rejoice in the grace of God, that we would go, yeah, I was dead compared to the life I'm living now. And I'm so grateful that there'd be a fresh sense of like, thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Thank you, Lord, for where you're leading me. Thirdly, that we would partner with God in bringing peace. That this would be a radically inclusive community because of what Christ has done. Regardless of background or culture, sexual orientation, gender, status, we are one in Christ Jesus Hallelujah. And you are welcome here. You are welcome here. You are welcome here. This is not an exclusive community where you've got to, you are welcome. It's scandalous. You're all welcome here. And then we're going to trust the Holy Spirit to do what He needs to do, not in you, but in me. That's where it's got to begin, in me. And lastly, that would ask God to come and inhabit our heart and life in a greater way that together as a church, that we would just be, yes, we are that new temple. We are the residing place of God's presence. What a cool, what an amazing reality. We are the residing place of the presence of God. You, you are the place in where his presence dwells. And the calling we have is to take the presence of God, And just be great waiters and waitresses to the people of the bay saying, I don't have much, but I just pray you'd know the presence of God, the presence of love, the presence that brings healing, the presence that brings hope. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. It's grace, it's welcome, it's acceptance. That we would just see the people of the bay flooded with the presence of God and would be great conduits of his love and his loving presence. That's the only thing we can offer. And it's the most beautiful thing in the world. So those are the three things, that God would reveal himself to you, that would rejoice in the grace of God and the calling on us. That would partner with God in bringing peace and acceptance and welcome to folks. And that God would inhabit our lives in a greater way. That we would be his residing place. Let's stand together.